Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Let It Roll, the podcast about how and why popular music happens, hosted by Nate Wilcox. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com. Nate uses AKG microphones and headphones. Today, author Brad Talinsky joins Nate to discuss his book, Light and Shade, Conversations with Jimmy Page. In this episode, Brad and Nate focus on Jimmy Page's early years, his apprenticeship in the UK rock and roll scene, his years as London's top session guitarist, playing in the Yardbirds with and without Jeff Beck, and his partnership with manager Peter Grant and the formation of Led Zeppelin. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. Today I'm joined by Brad Talensky, author of Light and Shade, Conversations with Jimmy Page. Brad, welcome. Hey, Nate. How are you doing today? Doing well. Glad to have you here. And so your book is a series of conversations with Jimmy Page, and it's not easy to get a series of conversations with Jimmy Page. How did you manage that? Um, well, I think why uh, Jimmy and I connected was uh, you know, back when he uh, released this record with uh, David Coverdale, uh, not too many people were taking that music seriously or that album seriously. And uh, I was uh, doing an interview with Jimmy for Guitar World magazine. And uh I really dug into the record and there was a lot of really incredible guitar work on it. Uh, not, you know, it wasn't everybody's cup of tea, but you couldn't deny the guitar work on it. And I really did my homework. And when I did my interview with Jimmy, I think he appreciated the fact that I took that record and his work on it very seriously. Um, we had a great conversation. It went on for, uh, a good two or three hours. We went into incredible detail on it. And uh, that started our, uh, you know, our long-term sort of journalistic uh, friendship. And Jimmy's somebody who has been notoriously reticent with the press. 
What's the story behind his leeriness with the rock press? Um, I think he he gets upset when people aren't informed or don't do their homework uh, on his music. I mean, that's really, really what he cares about. Uh, they get much of the journalism community then and now gets all hung up on the Zeppelin myth and lets it overshadow his creative work. So, you know, when he goes to have conversation with the press, you know, what do they want to know? They want to know about Aleister Crowley or, or uh, you know, his wild adventures with groupies. Uh, and, you know, I mean, that's a part of it. And Jimmy will tell you gladly that's a part of it. But it's a small part of it. Uh, the man is really all about his music. And, you know, uh, if somebody is talking to you and, 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 and they aren't respecting then that, that idea or that fact, then why should he take you seriously? And in the book, you detail some very specific instances where Rolling Stone and Cream Magazine, who were between them pretty much the alpha and omega of rock criticism in the late 60s, early 70s, both took basically pot shots at Led Zeppelin in the initial reviews of their work. Yeah. Well, it was funny. Um, I, it, it's very complicated in some ways why... Rolling Stone in particular didn't take the band seriously. I would sort of argue, even though that Cream took their pot shots here and there, they did actually, uh, you know, uh, write about Zeppelin in a in a largely favorable way. Um, but uh, Rolling Stone was coming from a uh, you know a, a perspective from the from the '60s where people were uh, taking folk and blues and traditional music in a very serious way. Uh, what Zeppelin was doing was mapping the future. They weren't looking towards the past. And I think that that just confused Rolling Stone. They just didn't understand that shift in perception. So they didn't respect what the band was doing. Um, they thought that the band was trying to be a traditional blues band, whereas Jimmy Page was already looking, you know, ahead and how he could take that music into the future. And I think ultimately they just didn't understand it. And now I want to sort of get a global portrait of Jimmy Page and why he matters so much to not just music history, but to music today. And and there's two things that really fascinate me about Jimmy Page. And one is that I kind of see Jimmy Page as the revenge of the Beatles and the Kinks and the Hollies and, and every British band who ever got ripped off by a manager, who ever um, got bullied by a promoter. You know, uh, Jimmy Page managed to put together an operation where he had what you call a vice grip on artistic control with Led Zeppelin. How did he maneuver himself into that position? Well, if you, if you look at the Beatles or you look at the kinks and some of those bands, they were just kids, you know, uh, that had a band that, that played in uh, bars or taverns or clubs or whatever. 
they didn't have any real world experience in terms of dealing with the record industry, uh, you know, managers. Um, there was just no frame of reference for them. They weren't stupid. They just didn't understand how the business worked. And this was the incredible advantage that Page had uh, being um, a session musician, uh, being, uh, you know, being in a band like the Yardbirds. Uh, he was able to see how the music industry actually operated. So by the time he formed Zeppelin, he already had a very sophisticated view on how uh, rock bands were touring, were being promoted, how managers treated their artists. Uh, and, you know, this helped him map out and understand what he wanted. He just had a world of experience that these other bands didn't have. And let's talk a little bit about how he got that experience. He started out uh, really precociously. He's in the skiffle boom of the late 50s, and that's, of course, the response to Lonnie Donegan uh, doing sort of an American folk tune uh, and having a big hit with it, sort of a slow burner hit with it in England, but it was massively popular. And basically almost every 12 year old boy in England ended up with an acoustic guitar. And Jimmy Page is one of those. But when Jimmy Page does it, he ends up on a TV show playing Skiffle. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's interesting. I hadn't really thought of it that way. But uh, yeah, I mean, Jimmy always had was always ambitious right from the beginning, and it, 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 it's interesting to map out the difference between him psychologically than say a Clapton or Jeff Beck or his contemporaries. Those guys were focused, you know, on the notes, on on getting them right and playing them properly, where Jimmy had a more global vision of getting the notes, playing them properly, and then trying to figure out the best way to present that to the world. You know, it wasn't such an insular view. It was a, uh, a you know, a view of how the world operated and how his music worked within the context of that. And he wasn't just smart. He was also lucky. Like you mentioned Jeff Beck, and it's not every uh, aspiring guitar player who bumps into a neighborhood kid who turns out to be Jeff Beck. So Jeff Beck and Jimmy Page spend their teenage years in Jimmy Page's living room listening to records and learning licks by Cliff Gallup and, and other rock and roll greats. Yeah, I mean, I think that there is a, you know, there is this creative synergy that that happens. I mean, you sort of see it in the Beatles where you uh, get a couple of talented guys like McCartney and Lennon and and George Harrison and they sort of spur each other on uh, as as opposed to sitting around in a room in a vacuum you know you see little bits and pieces of of other creative points of view and it and it just makes you better and it and it pushes you harder um, it's funny something very similar happened in the United States much later in the guitar world where you had um, Joe Satriani out in Long Island and he had a friend named Steve Vai and as kids these guys pushed each other and then you end up with these two incredible guitarists 
I think it 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 doesn't have you know I mean it has to do with luck so to speak, but it also just has to do with finding uh, you know people with like interests, smart people, and having them push you along. And I think that they were fortunate in that kind of way. But Jimmy was always one step ahead of Beck, and he he quickly goes from skiffle to being a full time rock and roller on the road at a very early age. Yeah. Well, I I don't know if you would say that he was ahead of Jeff. I mean, you know, Jeff is a as a guitar player you know, was a visionary in his own right. Um, yeah, he's Jeff Beck. You know, Jimmy <laughs> might have been just, a, J, J, Jimmy, Jimmy might have been a little bit, um, you know, bolder or ha- a little more sophisticated in his thinking and, and got, got there maybe a little quicker. But, uh, you know, both of those guys were, were fantastic and very different in their own ways. But Jimmy gets picked up by a guy named Neil Christian, who has a band called the Crusaders, and they hit the circuit. And this is before the Beatles break out. They're they're out there with Johnny Kidd and the Pirates as their contemporaries. Uh, yeah, there was Reddy Lewis, too, and the Red Caps, um, I think, before Neil Christian. Um, but, you know, I mean, we look at this now, but there were a lot of bands out there. I mean, there were a lot of people uh, – you know, probably a hundred little bands running around London. Uh, and it's a, sort of only in retrospect that we look at it and we see it as something, you know, unique or special. But there were a lot of people running around playing music. What what really, it wasn't so much him playing, I don't think, with Neil Christian uh, as much as it was the opportunity that came later when he uh, used that as a springboard to become a session musician. Yeah, and and he went back to London basically because his health collapsed playing these gigs on the road and and long drives, cold nights, sleeping on floors, et cetera, et cetera. And let's hear a little bit of the session work, though, that that first, it it didn't make Jimmy famous, but it gave him a name in the music industry. And I want to play what I think is one of the greatest uh, songs of the initial British invasion that Jimmy played guitar on, produced by Burt Burns. This is them featuring Van Morrison, Baby Please Don't Go. tearing it up on guitar, uh, backing up Van Morrison and them on Baby Let's Baby Please Don't Go. And that was produced by Burt Burns. And by the time, you know, Burt Burns is one of the great Atlantic R&B producers. He wrote Twist and Shout, uh, a number of uh, other classic hit songs. And he quickly realized that London was happening and went over to London and found them and produced them. And Jimmy Page, by this time, had already become a stalwart of the London session scene. Yeah, um, I'm glad you chose that track uh, because I think that is actually one of the better Cage 
studio sessions uh, during that that period. Um, You know, Jimmy was a good guitar player, but he was also a developing guitar player. He was developing his his vision. Um, You know, when I talked to Jimmy about it, he always referred to that period as an apprenticeship. And I think it is what separates him from almost everybody else during that period is he had this great opportunity to play, you know, on a wide variety of of music from, you know, more orchestral sessions to like straight ahead mainstream pop uh, to these big productions. It wasn't just that he was like uh, back sort of a, of a, you know, psychedelic rockabilly player or like Clapton, a, a, you know, blues fanatic. Here's Jimmy learning how to play well in a number of different settings. And that's really what ended up serving him well in Led Zeppelin. And there, there's sort of a wide variety of music. Yeah, it wasn't just playing with them and the Who and the Kinks and these heavy rockers. He was also backing up Petula Clark or Dusty Springfield or, you know, random TV soundtrack session. And he was playing with what's kind of a little known group now, but at the time were, you know, the best session players in London. And it was a a great apprenticeship and some of the people he was in the trenches with were were john mclaughlin who later goes on to fame with miles davis but unlike mclaughlin who strictly played rhythm guitar on those sessions and would not sell his creative ideas jimmy's out there ripping off solos improvising and really being creative such that you know mclaughlin's essentially invisible you can't hear his work if you go back and he doesn't remember what sessions he was on and, and didn't do anything notable there anyway but jimmy you can hear his fingerprints all over London in the 60s, whether it's Donovan or demos by uh, Jagger and Richards, the early version of Heart and Stone. Keith Richards swipes the solo for Heart and Stone from what Jimmy Page laid down on the demo that they did when they were working it out as a as a song for sale, potentially for sale. And and he ultimately ends up getting a production deal with Immediate Records. Tell us a little bit about that and what he did there with Andrew Oldham's label. Well, I think Jimmy thought that uh, his future, I think at that point, that he was going to be a producer. I think he was leaning more in that direction. And even later when I spoke to him, when I would ask him, you know, what he, what he thought was his most important contributions to Zeppelin, he didn't really talk about his guitar work so much. He talked about more of his production, how he uh, created a certain drum sound, or he was able to guide these great musicians that were in Zeppelin to do their best work. He was thinking more like a producer. So uh, when Immediate brought him on, I thought, I think he was very excited by that idea that uh, he wouldn't only just play guitar, but he would also, uh, you know, guide uh, and and create beautiful uh, back backing tracks for uh, talented singers and musicians. Um, I don't know if he, I mean, there are some really great intermediate, uh, immediate sessions, but uh, I don't think it completely fulfilled the, the promise of that. Um, 
uh, of what he wanted to do there. But uh, I, I know one of his most, one of his greatest uh, accomplishments as a producer at that time was producing the initial sessions for uh, John Mayall and the Blues Breakers with Eric Clapton. Uh, most people don't realize this, but it really was like I'm your witch doctor. You know, the single that he did uh, with uh, John Mayall that he really helped create the Eric Clapton sound. And a big part of that was the uh, they were the first people on Earth basically to get their hands on Marshall amplifiers. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, part of that thing, part of the Clapton sound that one could argue is the first true modern guitar sound. Uh, Jimmy produced those sessions. And what uh, Clapton wanted to do was create a larger-than-life guitar tone, which he did. And one way to do that was to turn up his Marshall amp, his Les Paul through a Marshall amp, turn it up loud, and then move the microphone back so it sort of simulated more of a hall sound or, or more of a live sound. Now, both of those things were almost against the rules of, uh, of studios at that time. Uh, you know, recording studios back in the 60s were basically run by these guys in lab coats who had a very strict sense of how to record things. And they had actual guidebooks and manuals that told them what they could and they couldn't do. Uh, one of the things that absolutely they shouldn't do is have distortion on any level. And of course, as we know, uh, a little bit of distortion is really what uh, created that Clapton sound. So in the middle of the sessions the, uh, that Jimmy was producing with Mayall, the uh, engineers at that time wanted to shut the session down because they it was against their rules to have any distortion on the track. And basically, Jimmy threw them out of the studio and engineered the session himself uh, so that he could capture that sound. And the record sold, and it created a revolution. And it that single act almost ended up changing how uh, studios were run in London. You started having uh, new studios open up like Trident and stuff like that that allowed for this form of experimentation. And let's hear it. Let's hear John Mayall and the Blues, Blues Breakers with Eric Clapton doing I'm Your Witch Doctor. John Mayall and the Blues Breakers with Eric Clapton on lead guitar playing a Les Paul through a Marshall stack, one of the first times that was ever recorded. And Jimmy Page, as you said, was uh, powerful enough as a producer and competent enough as an engineer to do it himself, do the mic placement, and get that ambient sound. And you talk about this in the book. And, and, this is and, and by, by the way, just as a correction, not to be too much of a nerd about it, it wasn't a Marshall stack. It was It was a combo back then. Uh, of they course, of course. Create, they hadn't had this. They hadn't created the stacks yet, but it, you know, it was still a Marshall combo. 
Yeah, and that would have been overkill to have the Marshall stack in the studio. Of course, that's an overkill many dabbled with then and later on. But Jimmy's relationship with Eric Clapton is interesting. We've already talked about his relationship with Jeff Beck, but the three of them have one thing big in common. They all played with the Yardbirds, and they came to it separately. Clapton played with the Yardbirds first, then quit when they went in a pop direction. He wanted to play hardcore blues, so he left for John Mayall. And at that point, the Yardbirds approached Jimmy to join the band, but he sends them to Jeff Beck, and it's only after Jeff Beck has his incredible 18-month run with the Yardbirds that Jimmy happens to catch a gig with them that he loved, but it was a bit of a fiasco. Yeah, well, um, I don't know if fiasco is the word. Uh, it's just that the Yardbirds were being produced by Mickey Most. And Mickey Most. I was just referring really to the talented. specific gig that where Paul Samuel Smith got pissed off and, and quit and gave Jimmy the opportunity oh, to come in. Uh, my bad. <laughs> okay. Oh yeah. Uh, sorry. So uh, yeah. So that's that's sort of a funny story. So uh, Jimmy goes to see the Yardbirds play, and you know at that time. The Yardbirds were a bunch of young guys. Uh, they were pretty wild. Uh, Keith Ralph, the singer, was known to uh, have a drink or two, so to speak. And um, Paul Samuel Smith, their their bass player, was a real. He was a perfectionist. You know, he was a guy that ended up actually being a great producer himself. He went on to produce Cat Stevens, some other people. And uh, Ralph was just totally out of control at at this uh, one gig that Jimmy went to see. And Jimmy was cracking up. He thought it was the best thing he'd ever seen. Ralph was just going nuts on stage and, uh, you know, screaming into the mic and scaring all the kids. Uh, but Samuel Smith just got totally upset with uh, how how chaotic the whole thing was and quit. And uh, Jimmy at that time had grown weary of doing session work. He sort of wanted to get out there and, and play a little bit. Um, you know, I think he was tired of doing everything behind closed doors and wanted to get a little bit of that adulation and probably uh, wouldn't mind the attention of the young girls. <laughs> and he also wanted to play with his friend, Jeff Beck. So uh, Beck sort of pushed for Jimmy to come into the band through the side door to play, uh, to play bass, to take Samuel Smith's role. And uh, they both sort of had this plan that they would eventually get Jimmy on guitar and they would create this great dual uh, guitar sound, um, which, you know, we did hear a little bit of. It did happen, uh, you know, towards towards the end of Jeff, Jeff Beck's stay with the Yardbirds. And let's take a quick break and hear from our sponsors, and then we'll come right back and hear more about what Jeff Beck and Jimmy Page accomplished together in the Yardbirds and what they didn't accomplish together. And so Jeff Beck and Jimmy Page, two incredibly talented lead guitarists in one band, and 
they had big ideas that would later be brought to fruition by groups like the Allman Brothers um, of playing leads in unison and harmonies, uh, doing just a lot of creative possibilities were there in front of them, but they didn't really get to fully explore what they wanted to do in the Yardbirds. And now we can talk about Mickey Most and his role as producer. Yeah, I mean, as Jeff Beck at that time was pretty erratic uh, as, as a human being. He was, by his own admission, sort of a, a, a moody human being. And uh, he was like a little frustrated with uh, the direction that the Yardbirds was going in. He, he sort of hated the touring conditions then, which were pretty brutal, uh, you know, four or five bands packed in a bus, you know, the band only playing for 10 or 15 minutes at, 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 at gigs. And, um, and I think he was also, though, although both guys are a little cagey about this from the modern perspective, I think Jeff was a little bit nervous as to what he had unleashed in Jimmy Page. Uh, you know, Jimmy started playing guitar in the band along with him, and there was a friendly competition. But there was also uh, Jimmy occasionally upstaging Jeff on on stage. So there was a there was a tension that was uh, that uh, you know was being created there, and uh, Jeff's behavior became more erratic. And then all of a sudden he just ditched the band for a couple of weeks. Uh, and after he left, he decided that wasn't such a great idea that he wanted to come back and the band didn't want them in because they were functioning just fine with Jimmy on the guitar. Uh, so that ends up, that ends up with uh, Jimmy recording a Yardbirds record, little games by himself without Jeff. Uh, now, again, Jimmy being a sort of a visionary, a producer in his own right, having done many, many sessions himself, had his own ideas on what he wanted to do and where he wanted to take the Yardbirds. But he was sort of saddled with uh, Mickey Most, who was a producer during that period of time uh, for the Yardbirds, who was more geared towards creating hit singles. So Jimmy would bring in these sort of wild experimental ideas and Mickey Mose would shut a lot of them down. Uh, if it wasn't in that two, three minute pop single format, Mickey didn't really want to know. Um, and music was sort of shifting at that time too. It was starting to get uh, the, uh, the San Francisco bands more experimental, more wild. Jimmy wanted to go in that direction. So he just kept on bumping heads with Mickey Most, who was producing Little Games. Um, and I think it was ultimately that problem, that tension, that put an end to that band. And let's backtrack just a little bit and, and hear the one single that Jeff Beck and Jimmy Page got to cut together with some creative freedom when they were working with Simon Napier-Bell before um, Mickey Mouse got control of the production. And this is the Yardbirds happenings 10 years time ago.
was happening 10 years time ago from the Yardbirds with both Jeff Beck and Jimmy Page on guitar. And that just, that's one of those tantalizing might have beens in rock and roll history is this collaboration of Jimmy Page and Jeff Beck. They also did a track uh, shortly thereafter when Jeff Beck went solo called Beck's Bolero, where they had Keith Moon uh, backing him up. And also another guy I want to bring up that Jimmy met while he was working as a session man and that's john paul jones who is not only a brilliant bass player but a brilliant arranger and keyboardist as well right yeah i think happenings is probably the best thing that jimmy had done you know pre-zeppelin i mean I, that, that track is just simply sensational uh and it would have been incredible to see jeff and jimmy do their thing together and have it stick together but even as friendly as those guys were we're talking about two gigantic egos that probably would <laughs> it probably can't come to blows uh, eventually it's funny um anyways I, i'm sorry what was the question oh i was just wanted to introduce john paul jones as well oh yeah well you know um John was probably sort of the bass equivalent to uh, to Jimmy Page, uh, meaning that he was the young, hotshot, studio session, half player, half producer, half arranger. Um, and it's no surprise that when Jimmy went to put together Led Zeppelin, that when he thought of who would be good to be in the band, that he would gravitate towards John Paul Jones. Again, also thinking, here's a guy that really knows something about the music business and knows his way around a recording studio. I mean, it turned out to be a magnificent choice. And the other uh, person that he meets in the Yardbirds tenure is Peter Grant, who's partners with Mickey Most, but his side of the partnership was actually being on the road with the band. And Jimmy and Peter Grant basically become the dual partners that are the visionaries behind Led Zeppelin. Yeah, I mean, Jimmy was looking for, I mean, Jimmy knew what he wanted to happen on, on the business side but he didn't want to have to focus on it. So uh, it was interesting that he was able to find sort of like his himself that, that could wear a business hat. You know, they, they shared similar sensibility, uh, same confidence, same sort of swagger. Uh, uh, but Jimmy could, could, uh, could carry that out on stage and in the studio while uh, Grant could carry that out in, in the, in the boardrooms. And not just the boardrooms, but also backstage. And there's these stories of, you know, Peter Grant and his crew taking on mafiosos, teamster unions. I mean, Jimmy Page out on the road saw the reality of what happened when bands were out there alone and unprotected and being preyed on by these sharks and Jimmy and Peter put together this organization that turns the tables on these goons. Yeah. I mean, there were a few guys, definitely. It gets a little lost in the murky sands of time. I mean, Peter Grant was one of those guys. There were a few other of these, um, 
you know, managers who were starting to get the idea around that time. Uh, uh, you had uh, Punch Andrews, who was managing Bob Seeger, and, uh, you know, out of Detroit. And these guys were not these managers, <laughs> they were, they were far from being suits, you know, they would go and beat up people if they found them uh, selling counterfeit merch, you know, they were, these were tough guys that were, um, you know, on the road that if somebody wasn't going to pay them, they had no problem uh, either taking matters into their own hands and beating them up or pulling a gun, you know, to get their money out. They knew how tough it was. Uh, and so Peter Grant, you know, Punch Andrews, I'm trying to think of uh, some other uh, people like that. I'm blanking the name of the guy who managed Alice Cooper was another one um, uh, in that era that took good care of his charges. But one interesting thing that I picked up from the book that I hadn't really thought about and did a little more research and found out more, but Jimmy wasn't looking to dump the Yardbirds. They kind of fell apart out from under him. Yeah, I mean, Jimmy saw the potential in the band, and he knew that they were all great players, and, and he had a vision for them, and you and you definitely catch some of that on Little Games. I mean, there's some really terrific tracks. It's just that they were being thwarted uh, at, at every turn um, by most. I mean, you, you hear that. Um, what is it, the run record, the five live Yardbirds? Um you know, you yeah. hear that they are very proto Led Zeppelin. In fact, they were doing a version of, of Dazed and Confused before Led Zeppelin did it. He knew what he wanted to do. Uh, but by that time, the rest of the band had gotten so demoralized because uh, they had been playing, you know, four or five years under terrible conditions. And they just weren't seeing, you know, they had sort of gotten bored or discouraged with the band before Jimmy had a chance to really exercise the control that he wanted over them. And it just fell apart. Uh, I think it was more due to exhaustion uh, than it was uh, anything else. And let's hear the Yardbirds do in Dazed and Confused. This is live from 1968. Yeah. Jimmy Page and the Yardbirds doing Dazed and Confused. And we'll hear the Led Zeppelin version at the end of the show, but the one thing that jumps out, like it sounds so much like Led Zeppelin, but Keith Ralph is no Robert Plant. He isn't, but, you know, in some ways, I really like Keith Ralph singing. I mean, I, I thought that... Uh, there was he had a there there was sort of a sinister quality about his voice um you know he was almost more like jim morrison than he was a uh, robert plant i could see where there would be you know potential for him to work within uh, a led zeppelin type of contrast but again 
you know, everything that I've heard about uh, Keith was that, again, all that time on the road, you know, took a toll on him. And he was a fairly difficult human being to to deal with or to manage with, almost like a Brian Jones uh, character towards the end. Yeah, and he tragically died in the mid seventies with a electrocuted himself with his amplifier in his home tragically. But the other thing about that song, Dazed and Confused, and this is an issue that you you brought up with Jimmy Page, and, and my hat's off to you to, to have the the nerve to to ask him about the plagiarism issue. But this is a song that was written by Jake Holmes, released on an album. Jimmy Page plays the Yardbirds play with Jake Holmes. They start. They adopt the song into the set, but when they put it on the first Led Zeppelin album, they don't have Jake Holmes' name on the songwriting credits. Yeah. I mean, you know, the, the controversy rages. It's a difficult thing to defend. Uh, but I think you have to look at it in context of the times. You know, people were really sort of borrowing, stealing, uh, you know, inspiration from each other. They were taking it from the blues. They were recycling things. And that was almost a time-honored tradition back then. You know, like rock and roll came out of a folk music tradition. It came out of a blues tradition. And uh, within the blues world, you know, you have Muddy Waters taking from, you know, directly from Robert Johnson, uh, you know, or John Lee Hooker or, or what have you. I mean, these guys were constantly borrowing lyrics, ideas, forms from each other. And it wasn't really looked at as a bad thing. It was just looked as, at as part of a music tradition. You know? Yeah, there's the it's classic instance of uh, Muddy Waters doing Hoochie Coochie Man, Bo Diddley basically ripping it off with I'm, I'm the Man, and Muddy Waters turning right around and, and putting out Manish Boy, which is a total swipe of the Bo Diddley song, but putting his own name on the songwriting credit. So it's not something that was totally unfamiliar to blues at all. But, but also the attitude towards it was different. Uh, it was sort of, a, like I said, what mu- musicians do. There's a tradition there. You know, uh, whether you're looking at blues or bluegrass or, you know, and rock and roll at that time was a lot closer to that world than it was to our current world where everybody is on the lookout for, you know, people ripping each other off, all that stuff, which is considered, you know, part of the experience of, of sharing ideas. Now, Jimmy, the way he sort of gets around that and I don't completely disagree is that he always took the arrangements and and did something weird or different with it Um, and that's really why we're celebrating Led Zeppelin instead of maybe some of the original sources and sort of what Jimmy did with it. Dazed and Confused is a little more difficult to defend uh, but uh, you know, I'll leave that to the courts. All I can say is if you're listening to Dazed and Confused, 
you're probably listening to the Led Zeppelin version and not the Jay Combs version. Yeah, absolutely. J- Jimmy and the boys uh, created this massive sound that was totally different. And even when you hear something like Communication Breakdown and you go back and hear the Eddie Cochran original Nervous Breakdown, you know, a musician will tell you, oh, those are the same chords. It's, it's the same song. But the average listener hears one as an old-timey 50s track and the other one is this, you know, raging rock and roll monster that still sounds pretty modern today to your rock and roll fan ears. But let's talk about putting together Led Zeppelin. And this is the one time in their careers where Jeff Beck kind of got a step on Jimmy, where Jeff Beck had put together his own group after the Yardbirds, the Jeff Beck group, with Rod Stewart, the sexy uh dynamic front man with a great vocal range and a big thunderous sound that they, they put out albums they're touring the u.s and and basically going where jimmy wants to go and jimmy and sharing peter grant's management as well but jimmy gets back to london gets with john paul jones and finds this singer and drummer that come together as a set now basically, it's checkmate for the Jeff Beck group once John Bonham joins up with Jimmy Page. Well, I would argue that it's not so much checkmate that one band is better than the other in terms of the playing and the musicianship. I think where the checkmate comes is that Jimmy produces Led Zeppelin and Mickey Most produces the reviled Mickey Most <laughs> produces Truth and Bacola. And those and both those records and uh okay you can send me hate mails. Uh but they sound terrible. You know, like the drum sound on Truth and to some degree Bacola. It really just sounds like they're beating on a cardboard box, you know. Jimmy takes over the production of Led Zeppelin one. And I would say that's a turning point in the history of music. Like Led Zeppelin one, the drum sound, his recordings of uh, him and Glenn Johns's recordings of John Bonham is the beginning of modern music. It's the first genuinely uh, important drum sound that, it, you know, it still resonates today, where the drums are as equal a part as any other instrument. That, you, 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 you AB Led, uh, Led Zeppelin one versus Truth or Bacola, and uh, sonically, there's no comparison. And I could tell you for a fact, uh, so the 13-year-old Brad Talinsky when he heard both of those records, you know, back when I was a kid, and I didn't know how to articulate any of this stuff. I was like, you know, Led Zeppelin one is a modern record. Led Zeppelin two is a modern record. And I would hear Beckola and I, I, I thought to myself, like, it must be a really old record because I, I thought that the production and the sound of it sounded antiquated or dated. So, I don't think it had anything to do with the musicians or the arrangements exactly. Uh, It had to do with the fact that the production on those Zeppelin records were so much better than what we heard on the Jeff Beck records. Now, on top of that, 
you know, Jimmy uh, was also a natural born leader. So when he put Led Zeppelin together, he put together a great cohesive unit um, that uh, got along uh, on a on a personal level, on a business level, on all these different levels. Uh, Jeff Beck's, uh, the Jeff Beck group was almost fighting from day one. You know, they were they were sort of destined to to fall apart. Yeah, it's a notorious type of band where they would do the show and Jeff Beck would jump in a limo and drive away and Rod Stewart and uh, Ronnie Wood and the drummer, Mickey Waller, whoever was playing drums at that time, would be stuck in some hovel uh, and maybe even taking a bus there. And, and so it's very much a, a caste system within the group that somebody like Rod Stewart is not going to put up with for very long. And Jimmy, even though he had an enormous power advantage over the young, I mean, Robert Plant was only 18 in 1968 and, and pretty much totally green. And yet Jimmy uh, brought that relationship along such that by the time of their third or fourth album, they're absolute equals and songwriting partners and, and the, the classic front man uh, guitar star combo that we all know and love. So yeah, the, I think it's very important to bring out the leadership. And I do want to add that, you know, Mickey Most was not the man for the moment in the late 60s, but he had had an incredible run in the mid 60s producing the Animals and the Nashville Teens and Herman's Hermits and, and you know, the, the guy's a rock and roll Hall of Fame caliber producer, but just for a different era. He was a master yeah, yeah, of absolutely. the early and, 60s and pop format. And Jimmy, you know, is sort of enormously generous when you talk to him and gracious about the various musicians and, and producers and people that he's worked with. He's almost always complimentary. And despite his differences with most on how to produce the Yardbirds, he's always quick to say how brilliant Mickey was at uh, producing hit singles for, for the era. Your, yeah. your, your point is, exact, is exactly right. Uh, Mickey Most probably was a genius, um, but he did not move with the times. And, and Jimmy did. And, and with Peter Grant, they uh, went shopping for a record label and landed basically the biggest, one of the biggest, hippest labels on earth at that point, the storied Atlantic Records, which had been one of the great R&B labels throughout the 50s and 60s. And by this point, they had sold to what would become the Warners uh, conglomeration. And but they still had the original creative team. Ahmet Erdogan very much had his hands on the tiller and was investing in this new rock music in a big way. And Jimmy and Peter scored one of the best deals of the era. Yeah, well, um, they did it in a very smart way. Um, the fact that Jimmy and Peter Grant completely recorded the first album and then was able to play it for Amit, who, who could hear, hear the brilliance of the record and the production. So, so uh, you know, those guys knew that they had, they had the gold. And, uh, and then uh, it wasn't very hard for Amit to uh, say, okay, yeah, you guys can have creative control over this. You've already taken it into your own hands. <laughs> Anyways, you know, all we have to do is package and put it out. Um, 
So on one level, you know, kudos to the label for understanding what they had. But uh, on the other hand, Jimmy and and Peter didn't leave much to their imagination. I mean, they 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 had Led Zeppelin one in their hands. And then when they took it on the road, they knew exactly how to deliver and blow away the hippie audiences of the era. Repeatedly, I think you have quotes from both Jimmy and John Paul Jones, which made me think that this was something of a mantra backstage with Led Zeppelin. They both say that the band put an emphasis on looking good, sounding good, and playing good. And this was in a phase when a lot of hippie bands were staring at their shoes and, and muttering off in the corner and, and wearing you know jeans and and tie-dye and, and you know putting on these shambolic shows. I think Humble Pie was out there sitting in a circle with their legs crossed playing acoustic guitars to festival audiences and stuff. And Led Zeppelin made no bones about it. They were here to rock. They were here to blow people away. And they also were early masters of FM radio. I mean, they refused to put out singles. Uh, I think maybe Atlantic got one or two singles out of them their entire career, but they knew that FM radio and touring in America was the key because they actually broke in America before they broke big in the UK. Yeah. I mean, I'll push back just a little bit on, on what you're saying. I mean, I think a lot for the most part, it's correct, but, uh, you know, I think their show in the early days, what what separated them was how great it was dynamically. Uh, you know, e- even if they had extended improvisation in it, it was always, you know, framed within a really, uh, it was always put within a super tight framework, unlike the cream where you just had sort of these rambling jams or the Grateful Dead where you had these rambling jams. Um, you know, Led Zeppelin, if they if they had an extended improvisation, it was always broken up in some sort of exciting, dynamic, uh, you know, orchestrated way. Uh, I don't think the showy part really comes along for another couple years. Because even when you, uh, if you look at Led Zeppelin DVD and see their show at uh, the Royal Albert Hall in 1970, it's not it's not the way we exactly think of Led Zeppelin. I mean, yeah, that's one where Jimmy's wearing a cardigan, isn't it? Yeah, he's wearing a cardigan and he's uh, doing his slouchy thing, but it isn't quite the uh, the beautifully, you know, dynamic thing that we see sometime around 72 or 73. It takes a while for the band, for the band's visuals to catch up with uh, how dynamic the music was. But that didn't stop bands from like Iron Butterfly from begging for mercy if they had to follow from Led Zeppelin 68. Oh, oh, no, 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 no. I mean, like, like, forget it. I mean, musically, these guys were, uh, uh, incredible. They were, you know, they used dynamics in a way and improvisation in a way that nobody had ever seen before. I mean, don't, don't get me wrong. And it was the power of the, the music and how dynamic Plant's voice was and how well Jimmy was playing that sort of blew audiences away. I think Paul Stanley saw uh, Zeppelin play in, in, in 70, Paul Stanley from KISS, and 
him and his friend walked out of the show and he said to his friend, don't even say a word. Let's just think about what we just saw. (laughs) 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 He was just so amazed by, you know, the, the vibe and, and the music and the dynamics of the music. And Brad, uh, it's time to wrap up. The conversation's been about light and shade, Conversations with Jimmy Page by Brad Talinsky. And thanks so much for walking us through some of the secrets behind the scenes for how Jimmy Page laid the groundwork to have complete artistic control and production control of Led Zeppelin and able to do the work he did. Thanks for coming on the show. Uh, Thank you, Nate. Appreciate it. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Nate will be back next week with Maria Sherman to talk about her book, Larger Than Life, a history of boy bands from New Kids on the Block to BTS. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com. Light and Shade, Conversations with Jimmy Page is published by Crown. Please support our show by ordering via the Amazon referral link on our website, letitrollpodcast.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.